The primary question that this message will attempt to answer is this. What happens when local churches send and support missionaries? So to be specific, I intend to illustrate from Scripture some mutual benefits, both for members of the church, who we call the senders, and the missionaries who advance the gospel to the less reached parts of the world. We could call them goers. The missionary task necessitates that some disciple makers go to the nations while others supply the needs of those who go. So in making that distinction, I want to make very clear from the beginning, there are not classes of disciple makers. Goers don't rank higher than senders. Both are necessary and both benefit mutually when they partner together for the work, for the missionary task. So I want to ask that question. What happens when churches send and support missionaries? I want to answer it by showing from Scripture, primarily from Philippians 4, some of the benefits that come about when that happens. But I don't think that that's the most important question in terms of missions. It's an important question, but it's not the ultimate question. So before I answer the question of benefits, I want to give a few key points concerning motives, the motives for why we would partner together in missions, why missionaries and churches should partner together. I want to do that lest you think that my objective this morning is to attempt to somehow guilt you into supporting new missionaries, because that is not my objective. And I want to say that I love, I've loved the way this conference has been set up. I hope that you praise God for a pastor, and I know you do, a pastor who loves you and shepherds you well by giving thought to the structure of these themes and these messages, thinking about the mission of the church, So it's good to think about and be reminded of evangelism and disciple-making and how those things lead to the planting of new churches and how the planting of new churches can lead to the sending out of new missionaries. And then those new missionaries evangelizing and making disciples and planting new churches to continue that cycle on and on and on. And there's a necessary order to those Things. And in, in this message, I hope to help you see how some of that process ties together. So I want to think with you about benefits for missionary and church partnerships. And we can easily fall into a trap of only pursuing partnerships because of the benefits. We're really good at asking, what's in it for me? And we can manipulate situations and even relationships for our own good, without really even giving any thought to motives. So I want to ground our motives before we talk about benefits. So the the structure of this message, I hope, is is pretty straightforward, uh, whether you take notes or not. But first, I'm going to give three motivations for missions partnerships, and then six benefits for missions partnerships. Three motivations, and then six benefits. 
our first and foremost motivation for the missionary task, number one, is the glory of God. Philippians 4.20, Pastor Duane read this for us. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. The primary motive for missions is not guilt, it's glory. Some of Paul's letters function as missionary updates. So maybe you've heard some teach about how the letter to the Romans essentially functions as a missionary prayer letter. And I would say that the letter to the Philippians operates that way as well. Paul is a missionary, and he's writing to one of his supporting churches, the one in Philippi. And he's teaching them through his letter what should motivate the partnership that they have. They have an existing partnership already, and he's teaching that it must be motivated by the glory of God. And you see that throughout this letter. Turn back with me to Philippians 1 and verse Starting in verse 9, he says this to them. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prayed this for the Philippian believers, that they would abound in love and knowledge and discernment, that they would approve what is excellent, that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ, for the glory and praise of God. So it's not just missionary lives that should be motivated by the glory of God, but the lives of the senders as well. Missionaries ought to pray this way for their supporters. We shouldn't just pray, Lord, fill their bank accounts and their wallets so they can send me on my way. But rather, pray, fill their lives with righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. See this again in chapter 1, verse 25. Convinced of this, he writes, convinced of his need to stay with them. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul had planted this church in Philippi. He had invested his life into the believers there by personally discipling some of them. He had done this, he says, for your progress and your joy of faith. So that they would have cause to glory in Christ Jesus when he came to them again. And that church's spiritual growth, partly because of Paul's investment in their lives, their partnership with him, led to their boasting of the glory of God. This is echoed in chapter 3, verse 3. He teaches them, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here's how you know what motivates you. Ask yourself this question. Do we glory in Christ Jesus or do we have confidence in the flesh? 
Here's what confidence in the flesh looks like. If you go down to chapter 3 and verse 18, he describes it this way. He says, Many of whom I have told you often and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So to have confidence in the flesh is to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. It's to end in destruction. It's to glory in shame with our minds on earthly things. But the contrast of that is seen in the next two verses. Chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So to glory in Christ is to have our minds not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. On our heavenly citizenship where Christ will transform even our earthly bodies to be like His body, which is glorious. Look back at chapter 2. Starting in verse 9, maybe the most well-known section of this letter. Paul explains the glory of God this way. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, that is, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father has exalted the Son so that through the worship of the Son, the Father gets the glory. Paul gets this idea even from the Old Testament. Isaiah 45, starting in verse 22, reads this way. The Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Even Isaiah makes that connection with the ends of the earth coming to the Lord and glorying in him because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. God does the saving. We do the confessing. We are justified. God is glorified. That's the first and primary motivation for missions and missions partnerships. The second motivation is this. The grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. As with most of Paul's letters, Philippians begins and ends with this idea of grace. Chapter 4, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
And that book ends with the very beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 2, where he wishes grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very typical way for Paul to begin and end his letters with that greeting of grace. But how does that grace affect and motivate their partnership for missions? Look at it down in chapter 1 and verse 6. He tells them, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Partakers with me of grace. Both the church and the missionary shared in the grace of Christ. There, there was not and there is not one measure of grace for those who go and another measure of grace for those who send. Both sides received salvation, how? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And both sides were then motivated by grace, by the grace of Christ, and by the glory of God, to partner together in the missionary task, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was the grace of God that motivated them. And that spread of the gospel is the third motivation. So the glory of God, the grace of Christ, and the spread of the gospel. I want you to notice, I hope you see the necessary, logical, sequential connectedness of these motivations. We're not, we're not going to be motivated to spread the gospel if we've not first been gripped by the grace of Christ toward sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. So that's why these motivations are intentionally linked in this letter. You see this in chapter 4, verse 15. He tells them, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. They were his only partnering church. In the beginning of the gospel, which means, from his perspective, from Paul's perspective, from the beginning of my ministry, the beginning of my evangelistic ministry. They, they shared an ambition for the spread of the gospel. And so they partnered together. And notice how he speaks of their partnership, again, all throughout this letter. So starting back again in chapter 1, even in verse 3, he tells them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We read verse 7 earlier about how they are partakers with me of grace. Why? The end of verse 7. Because in my imprisonment, you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They part, it was as if they partook with him 
even in his imprisonment. Which, according to verse 12, he, says, he tells them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, the fact that I am in prison. So Paul's writing this letter from a Roman prison. And he says, even this has happened to me, really, it has really served to advance the gospel. He says, he repeats it down in verse 16. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And so he tells them in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He even wanted to send other partners in the gospel to them. He wanted to send Timothy to them. And he says of Timothy in chapter 2, verse 22, You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Paul wanted partners who were also interested in the spread of the gospel. He even mentions some of the members of this church by name. Pastor Duane mentioned earlier the, the prominent role that the ladies of the church here have, have played even in this conference. Apparently, some of the ladies in the Philippian church had also played a prominent role in his ministry. And he mentions them. So chapter 4, verse 3. I ask you also, true companion... Help these women, he mentions them in verse 2, Yodia and Syntyche, help these women, and here's what he says about them, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. It's as though, even from a distance, that they were working hand in hand. So when we have become convinced that the Glory of God in the face of Jesus has shined on our lives and opened our eyes to the truth of our need for Christ and His sacrifice for us in our place, on our behalf, for our sins. We will be eager to spread that gospel to others because that is the gospel. And we will want to labor Together, side by side with other believers in spreading the gospel. Some by going and some by sending. Those are the motivations. The glory of God, the grace of Christ, and the spread of the gospel. That's the foundation. So now we can ask what I posed at the beginning. What happens when these partnerships are in place? What happens when churches send and support missionaries? I think there are six benefits mentioned here in, at the end of this letter. Six benefits of missions partnerships. Number one, the missionary rejoices because of the care of the church. The missionary rejoices because of the care of the church. Chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul rejoiced that the Philippian church had cared for him. 
Now, does this mean that Paul was only glad and joyful because of what they'd given to him? No. We see throughout this letter this theme of joy, this prominent theme of joy throughout this letter to the Philippians. Paul was joyful about much more than their generosity toward him. Chapter 1, verse 4, he prayed for them with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoiced that Christ was preached even if his reputation suffered. Chapter 1, verse 25, he worked alongside them for their joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said his joy would be fulfilled by the church's unity. 2, 17 and 18, he rejoiced because he could sacrificially serve them. It wasn't all about what they could give to him, it was how he could serve them. He rejoiced in that. Chapter 2, verse 28, he'd send another church leader, Epaphroditus. Probably with this letter to them, he says, I send him to you for your joy. Twice in this letter, he commands them, rejoice in the Lord. He says that he himself rejoiced in Christ and not in the flesh. And he even goes so far as to say that the Philippian church itself was his joy. He calls them brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown. So their support of him and their care for him added to his joy. But it wasn't his only joy. But he was able to rejoice because they expressed their care for him. That's the first benefit. Second benefit. The missionary and the church learn contentment in Christ. Okay, the missionary and the church learn contentment in Christ. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you're familiar, if you've read the book of Acts and some of Paul's other letters, you know some of what he's talking about. You know that there were times where Paul had much, and there were times where he had very little. But how much he had did not determine his joy. He remained content because his contentment was in Christ. He understood there were times where the church could not send their support. They could not send him gifts. They could not meet his needs. And when that happened, he learned to be content and to find strength in Christ. And when the church did send support, that probably meant that there were times where the church had to do without. They said, if, if we send this to Paul, we don't have it for ourselves. They sent it. Anyway, in that case, the church would also know what it means to be content in Christ. Paul knew that even if no one supported him, even if no one gave to his needs, Christ was sufficient. The third benefit, the church shares in the distress of the missionary. The church shares in the distress of the missionary. 
Verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. You know, partnering with missionaries is sometimes joyful and sometimes distressing. I would imagine when no other churches were supporting Paul, he may have been distressed. He may be able to empathize with pre-field ministry. And you know, missionaries can be, at the same time, content and distressed. But their distress is relieved, can be relieved when it's shared with other churches. Misery loves company, right? And the Philippian church shared with Paul in his distress. He says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. They shared in his trouble when no one else would. Not just once, but repeatedly, once and again, so that his needs would be met. And it was beneficial for both of them. Benefit number four, the fruit of the missionary abounds to the account of the church. Okay, the fruit of the missionary abounds to the account of the church. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I'm glad for this gift, but I'm not looking for the gift as much as I'm looking for the fruit that increases to your credit. The fruit. Jesus had commanded his disciples, I've chosen you, I've appointed you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And that fruit will remain. This parallels with what he tells them at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Go and make disciples. That's another way to say go and bear fruit. We read in chapter 1 verse 11 about how Paul prayed they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So so missionaries are sent out so that disciples can be made, so that fruit can be brought in. And when missionaries make disciples, that fruit is not credited only to the missionary, but also to the churches who send them. So Paul wasn't seeking fruit just for himself, but also for his churches. So if you if you want to obey Jesus's command to bear fruit, one way to do it is to send Missionaries, you are being obedient as you send missionaries. Praise God that you are doing that. Benefit number five. God supplies the needs of the church and the missionary for his glory. God supplies the needs, both of the church and of the missionary, for his glory. Verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Paul was confident that God would meet his needs with or without the Philippian church. And he wanted them to be confident that God would meet their needs. Even when they gave sacrificially. Isn't it remarkable? Even in prison, Paul could say, I am full because of the gifts that the church has sent him. 
And when God does meet the needs of His people, both the senders and the goers, He does it for His glory. Not for the glory of the senders or the goers, but for His own. Benefit number six. The saving grace of God extends to every saint in all the families of the earth. The saving grace of God extends to every saint in all the families of the earth. So the letter concludes this way. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So he's concluding this letter. He's sending greetings from other believers with him. And there are even greetings from saints in Caesar's household. Which means the gospel of Jesus had reached even to the highest ranking family in Rome. And they're sending greetings to the supporters of the prisoner that they're watching. God is using the missionary and the church to accomplish this. He's fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. That in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I want to close with an illustration, an Old Testament illustration. 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. You can turn and look at it with me if you'd like. We've seen the motivations. We've looked at the benefits. Now one illustration. 1 Samuel chapter 30. We have an Old Testament example of the significance of various roles in advancing God's name among all the peoples. 1 Samuel 30. David had been anointed as king in Israel, but he had not yet actually come to the throne. In fact, the reigning king, Saul, was opposing David. And so David's on the run. So David's a fugitive, but even that didn't stop him from leading his men against the enemies of God so that he could display to them what kind of God he served. So they returned home from one encounter, and David and his men realized that their town had been raided. Read it with me in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites, who had made a raid against the Nebeg and against Ziklag, they'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So what does David do? Verse 8. He inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? 
They answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Isn't it good that the mission is guaranteed success before you're even sent out in it? That's why missionaries go. We're guaranteed to win. So, verse 9, David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left, uh, who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. So he got the, the go-ahead from the Lord. David took 600 of his best men to overtake these Amalekite kidnappers. 400 of the men went with him and 200 stayed behind. Here's how the battle goes. Look down at verse 17. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who had mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. So it belonged to David, right? He'd captured it. It belonged to the men who were with him when they took it. So it comes time to divide the spoil. And here's their thinking. Verse 21. David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow David, who'd been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said... Because they did not go with us, because the 200 did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So you you see the thinking here. Only those on the front lines deserve the spoils. Only they get the benefits. Only if you swung a sword. But that's not what David thinks. Verse 23. David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given to us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as, is, for as his share is who goes down into the battle... So shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And what does this have to do with missionaries? Some Christians are on the front lines. Some are advancing the gospel in nations where Christ is not yet known. But other Christians stay by the baggage. They guard the rear. They keep those on the front lines strategically stocked and refreshed. They don't swing the swords. But all of them, all 600, take part in the fruit, in the spoil. Because the victory belongs to all of them. The fruit of the gospel, as Paul says, abounds to the account of both the giver and the goer. 
And you know what? We praise God for an even wiser king than David. A greater king than David. Our king is like the master of of a house. Jesus tells us in Matthew 20. He generously rewards all those who work in his vineyard. It might seem from our perspective that some work longer and harder and others contribute less. But all are hired to, uh, to work. And all who are hired to work receive what the master graciously provides. It's all his. He gives it as he sees fit. And our task is not to compare, but to gladly labor together for the one who has called us. So we we can either go to the nations, or we can send others to go to the nations. If we don't do either one of those, we disobey. But we do one or the other, right? And we can be confident that God will provide for His people to accomplish His purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace of Christ that brings salvation to all people. And we thank You that Jesus, though He was rich, He became poor. For our sake, so that we who are poor might become rich in Him. Thank you that we can trust you, that you supply our needs. Help us, Lord, to obey your command to make disciples. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.